The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. During the recording of this sermon, we experienced some technical issues. Please excuse the audio quality. As our kids have gotten older, we've uh, started to think about and look into different colleges, which is scary, uh, even that conversation. It's surprising to me, though, to think about the way colleges sort of present themselves. Sometimes you think about the way that traditionally they would do it, but there's a new wrinkle. Now you'll you'll be able to find some that will offer safe spaces uh, on campus. Now these safe spaces are are these rooms that are for students to go when they feel criticized or harassed in any way. And I'm I'm just be the first to say, praise God for the safe safety that, that's, that we're aware of. We want to go to places where we can be safe from any kind of harassment or bullying or anything like that. But then they, if you continue to read, sometimes you can even go to these safe places when you feel like you're, in a, you're, you're being offended by a topic in class um, or that you might even disagree with something going on on campus. So often universities are giving out what are called trigger warnings. Which are basically like content warnings on movies. Okay, this movie's rated this. You're gonna, you're, 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 you'd expect this kind of thing. So tell you what kind of content would be in class or on campus that day, so that you'll know if it's potentially controversial or upsetting, and you can bypass that event or that class and go to a safe space for refuge. Security is a growing industry. Feeling safe. Uh, the demand is always high, and we can, we can even see it grow with a little bit of dramatic emphasis. Think about the commercials that you see on, on television with a really nice, well-lit house in the evening, suddenly being stuck up on by burglars, and they break in only to be deterred by the alarm system that runs them directly into the arms of the police. And then the question is, you know, who's watching over your house? You can dial this number to receive your home security system. We naturally look to secure our homes and our vehicles and our families from harm. Not just physical harm, but we look to financial security as well. Rightly so. Savings accounts, life insurance policies, retirement accounts, college savings accounts, medical insurance policies, even funeral planning. There are even deeper layers to our desire for security. More mental, more more spiritual. We want to actually feel safe. In our neighborhood or in our country's military strength, or how others perceive us, how others love us. Princess Diana said at one time, I don't want expensive gifts, I don't want to be bought, I have everything I want, I just want someone to be there for me to make me feel safe and secure. Security is one of those gifts from God that is good, but can also easily and quickly morph into a God in and of itself. We can put our trust in the things that make us feel secure and then build towers of man-made structures into our lives that eventually garner our hope and trust away from God. So pursuing safety and financial stability, care for our families, of course, is good and right. But the question isn't what we do for security, but why are we doing it? Is it wisdom in your life or is it idolatry? There's a fine line there. What are you really trusting in for your security this morning? Who are you leaning on at bottom for, for, 
all those strategies and precautions? Where does God's power and His strength, His goodness and His sovereignty, His word and His commission, where do those things play into what your heart is depending on today? Today we're going to see a very revealing passage, not just about God's ability to bring true security, but also our inclination to look to find it in everything but Him. 1 Samuel 7 and 8 stand in stark contrast to one another. One could be purple, one could be the opposite of purple, white. In chapter 7, you'll see here the, the appearance, the, the people's awareness, rather, of their own sin against God. And they're repenting of their sin against God, and God is actually providing for them and protecting them. And then right after that, it's almost as if the dust hasn't even settled. Although there's some time that's gone by, a lot of time, that people forget God and His faithfulness in chapter 8. And they seek after security in a worldly manner, in a, with a worldly motive, through a king that would make them more like the nations. If I was to tell you the main point of these two chapters, I would just say in two words, trust God. Chapter 7 and 8 are about us learning to trust God. Because He is the provider, the protector, the redeemer, the merciful Father that brings true security to our lives. You won't find it anywhere else. Anywhere else. We're going to look at these chapters like scenes. You can see some notes in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Uh, we're going to describe that first scene, number one, as... Um, we'll just call it security in idols. You see that in chapter 7, verses 3 to 6. Security in idols. Number two, the second scene you want to look at and think about a picture of security in God. In verses 7 to 17. Security in God. And then number three, the third and final scene gives a picture of security like the world. Security like the world. In chapter 8. From where is your security this morning? Is it misplaced? Is it totally absent from your life? Not even there at all. Is it in God alone? Perhaps the best place to start with this is just an evaluation of our hearts and then repentance. Number one, security and idols. Last week we saw how Israel's sin, particularly that of its leaders, its priests, led to their military defeat. God showed how he was sufficient by himself to defeat Israel's enemies and that he could not be manipulated by anyone. If you remember the story, uh, Israel tried to take the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky rabbit's foot that would help them defeat the Philistines, and they were defeated, the Ark was stolen, and then God poured out plagues until the Philistines returned the Ark themselves. And now the people have spent some 20 years lamenting after the Lord. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. 20 years. Presumably they're examining their hearts. They're humbling themselves and they're seeking to turn from their sin. But we also learned that Hophni and Phinehas were not the only ones who were sinning against God. The people themselves had adopted some of the Canaanite worship, idolatry in their own lives, and were seeking to blend it with the worship of Yahweh. Idolatry was everywhere. And so Samuel now reappears after kind of a 20-year break from learning about what's going on in his life. 
He's, he came in as a young boy. Now he's a full-grown man and a prophet. And he's calling the people to repentance. That's where we are in chapter 7, verse 3. Look there. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherah, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. The section in chapter verse 3 here begins with an if-then statement by Samuel about the nature of true repentance. We learn a lot about repentance here, don't we? If, he says, the Israelites are seeking to return to the Lord, it's a picture of repentance turning around, with all of their hearts. See all these descriptors of repentance? Returning to the Lord with all of our hearts. Then they must put away their foreign gods. Just notice the emphasis on true repentance. That if implies there's a wrong way to do this. There's a wrong way to repent. A shallow way. A cheap way. A cheap version of the true thing. An example would be just showing emotion or remorse over sin, but not actually turning from it. Having tears, but no turning. And then notice the tangible response that he calls for here. If it's sincere, you must actually put away or literally put down your idols, your foreign gods. And to say, well, any god other than Yahweh is a foreign god. doesn't matter where it's from. It's an imperative. A picture of laying something down, never being picked up again. These asterisks and veils are local manifestations, these idols of, of, of the gods of love and fertility. So this amounts to a rejection of the Canaanite deities of fertility that were associated with sexual rituals at these Canaanite shrines. So that's right, the Israelites were living in an overly sexualized culture and had let that invade their worship of God and had learned to live with it even to allow for it. Now, the other side of the coin that Samuel flips here, one side is to turn away, lay down, has to do with positive and singular devotion to God. So just turn away from your false gods and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, verse 3. It's just you know, it's a unique characteristic about the God of the Bible. Other pagan deities are happy for you to bring guests into the worship service. You may worship anyone you like, call on different parts of different gods to help different parts of your life. That's fine with them. Not the God of the Bible. Yahweh is an exclusive God. He's a jealous God. Calls his people to worship him exclusively. And by the way, he also claims to have territory over everything. So to worship Yahweh is the same as rejecting every other God. And the people did this. Samuel calls them to repentance. They gather in this cup. They put away their idols. They fasted. They poured out water to the Lord, which is perhaps a, a sign of their repentance, maybe a purification ritual or a sign of kind of accompanying their fasting, pouring out the water. They corporately confess their sin together as a people. 
And they're trusting God alone. So to trust God with all of our heart means repentance from our trust in anything and everything else. Brent, I wonder if you've thought much about that word repentance lately. I was having breakfast with someone recently who was a regular church attender, goes to church every week. This was years ago. And I mentioned the word repentance, and he just said offhand, I haven't heard that word in years. He said it's more of a churchy word um, that we try to stay away from as much as we can. I think from a desire to be understandable and reach out to people. But friend, if you're here and you're not used to hearing words like that, you're not used to coming to church, I just want you to know that's a word you need to understand. You need to be familiar with it, and particularly the meaning behind it. John Wesley spoke of repentance as the porch of religion. The porch of religion. He said we can't avoid the porch of repentance without walking, um, while walking through the doors of faith, he said. If you want to get to the kitchen, you have to walk through the porch. That's what he's saying. Repentance is necessary. We can't be saved. We can't know God and have a right relationship with Him apart from repentance. And this part of the Bible illustrates why. Because we all are holding on to and are marked by sin. Our trust in ourselves and other things that satisfy us, to help provide security for us. And so the Bible calls us to turn away from these things, to put our trust exclusively in God, not to add God to the list of other things that we're trusting in, even if he's number one on the list. He wants to be the whole list. It's got to be him and him only. Everything else must go. Friend, you and I are sinners, just like the Israelites here. We've sinned against God by trusting in everyone under the sun, except the one who made it. And we deserve his judgment for our sin. And he'll judge us. He's promised to judge us. If we hold on to our idols of, of self-dependence and secret saviors and cultural saviors, as we must repent. Repent. Turn away from your sin and trust Jesus Christ, who is a sinless, the sinless, perfect Son of God, who came to earth as our representative. He died for your sins to pay for them. He took your place. He rose from the grave the third day. If you would turn from your sins and trust him, you'll be saved from God's wrath. You'll be brought into a relationship with God forever. You see how these are two sides of the same coin? We would call that coin conversion or being born again. We must on one side repent of our sins and on the other side put our faith in Christ alone. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. I'd love to talk to you more about that after our worship service if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian. But it's also good for us who are believers to remember that repentance is not a singular event in our lives, but a continual way of life. Those of us who do know Jesus, who have new hearts and the indwelling spirit, know that we still sin. We are not perfect Although we are forgiven in God's eyes, we still sin and hide idols in our own lives and need to be regularly convicted by God's word and turning away and laying them down, having our blind spots revealed. I think we do this individually and we do this corporately. So individually when we sin, 
We want to confess our sins and turn from them in tangible, radical ways. So, brother and sister, we need to be reminded that true repentance is more than just feeling sorry for our sin. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in our actions. The Israelites laid down their, their idols and worshipped God, notice, for his own sake. They weren't trying to get something from him. It's They're attacked during their worship service. During this time when, when Samuel was about to offer uh, an offering to the Lord, they're sort of attacked here by the Philistines. But they're, they're out to come after God. That's a good test of our repentance is why are we really turning away from our sins? Is it because we know we've, we've sinned against God or is it because we've been caught doing something we know we shouldn't do? And we're ready for those consequences to be over. There's some tangible steps you need to make in repentance this morning. Markers of your seriousness against your sin and an urgent desire to turn from it. Who have you confessed your sin to lately? How are you using the church, if you're a member of our church, as a tool of God's grace in your repentance? You, know, you shouldn't be the only one who knows about your sin. Shine light on it by involving others around you who love you and will care for you and pray for you. And we also corporately confess our sins, don't we, together as a church. And you know, that's not an empty ritual when we do that. It's a real time of confession and repentance. And it's a reflection of our hope in the gospel. If we did that, we have a silent time of confession and everyone's prayers were mic'd up at that moment. And you came in thinking this is a perfect church. You would understand quickly, no, it's not. Because people left and right are confessing their own hatred for their sin. Their own desire to turn away from it. Their own frustration in their own sin. But they're also showing this desire for Christ, for something better. For the power of the Spirit and the hope that we have in Him. Because the gospel doesn't make sense apart from repentance. And the gospel without repentance is a cheap substitute. That's what Bonhoeffer said. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Living and incarnate. So maybe like the Israelites here, you need to repent and put down your idols and devote yourself again wholly to the Lord. We ought not to put our trust and security in idols. The next section shows us where we should put our security and trust, clearly, in God and God alone. Number two, we should have our security in God. So the Philistines come back onto the scene now, in chapter 7, into the story. It's 20 years after they've been defeated by God, and these miraculous, you know, the plagues and all the things that happened with the, the cows going back to Beth Shemesh. 20 years later, they seem to have forgotten what happened. And so they gather to attack Israel at Mizpah, which is from the, the, belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, just eight miles north of Jerusalem. So interestingly, this scene is pretty much the opposite of what happens in chapter 4, if you remember. There the Israelites were proud. They presumed, hey, bring the ark in. It's all good. They were trying to strong-arm God. And the Philistines were afraid. Here, the tables are turned. There seems to be a new humility and a new dependence upon God and His work in Israel. Look at verse 7 of chapter 7. 
Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty plow that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as beth Car. What a contrast from chapter 4. In chapter 4, Israel was struck down. Here the Philistines are struck down. Same word. In chapter 4, Israel tried to manipulate God. Here Israel is repenting before God. The result of chapter 4 was a defeat in a child that was born named Ichabod, if you remember. Meaning the glory has departed. And here there's a victory and a stone, there's a stone erected named Ebenezer. A stone of health. Just a, just a contrast in these two chapters. Now this story is easy to preach from, especially because we know the, the ending. But let me just point out how dangerous and vulnerable trusting God alone feels like. If you're surrounded by a military army and they are pursuing you with weapons, the natural thing isn't to go to the priest and ask the priest to pray. The natural thing isn't to kill a lamb and bring it and burn it as an offering to have the priest pray for a storm. That is just the courageous faith that we see here on display. It is not easy to find our security in God when the world attacks. But the Israelites, at least for this brief window, and sometimes we just have to think of things like that. For this brief window, because it's going to change in a minute, believe that Yahweh will defend them. They believe it. They've turned from their sins, they've obeyed the, the word of God, and now they're trusting in God to take care of them. But I love pictures like this in the Bible, because they point us to our need for God, and they ought to point us to desperate prayer. There's no doubt there's a sense of desperation that makes its way through the camp, throughout Israel's camp that day. If God doesn't work, we are toast. We're going to die. Isn't that always the case? Isn't this why we learn so much about God's power in the worst of times in our lives? When our backs are against the wall? Or we're experiencing great trial or great loss? We're forced into a desperation mode, which usually leads to increased prayer. Trust in God. That he's all we have left. The Bible just teaches he's all we have. From beginning to end. In the first place, we ought to operate every day in desperation mode. That ought to be normal mode. We, we ought to pray with desperation for the salvation of our children. Pray that God would save them. Pray with desperation for the racial unity of people in our church and in churches across this country. With desperation, not with, with little hopes of, well, the government will take care of it. 
Social things will take care of it. Time will heal wounds. Pray with desperation for the person in our family that does not care about God. They can go through emotions all day long, go to church all day long, doesn't care. For the end of abortion. For the salvation of unreached people groups. The hard conversation that we need to have next week. For the salvation of our neighbors. We're not desperate enough in our prayers. And I think it's just because we drastically overestimate what we can do in our own strength and underestimate who God is and what He can do to bring about change in our lives. We found our security in ourselves. But by His grace, God will often remind us that we are totally dependent upon Him. Jesus reminded the disciples that. that they, they were sent out to, to go and preach and to cast out demons and they hit a wall and said, okay, there's this young boy and we keep talking and praying and we're not getting anywhere. And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And how desperate are you in your prayers? How desperate are you for God? The good news is that our future doesn't depend on the, the, the amount of desperation, the amount, the quality of our prayers. We're not left to, to, to fend for ourselves in that way. God wants us to be faithful. He wants us to trust Him, to come to Him. But notice how Israel goes to their prophet and priest, Samuel, to, on their behalf to pray to God. Did you know that we as Christians have someone who is interceding for us? Someone who stands before the Father on our behalf? Did you notice how Samuel had sacrificed a, a young lamb here? Friends, our perfect priest is the sacrifice for us. And he not only takes care of our sins, but he stands and prays effectual prayers before God for us. That means the prayers happen when he prays. Jesus prayed for Peter in this way. He told him in Luke 22, before the passion, before everything happened with Peter in denying Christ, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and that, you have, and that when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And that's an effectual prayer by Jesus. He prays that it happens. We, we watch Peter's story and he comes around because Jesus prays. Who is to condemn? Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes and is interceding for us. Because this is where our security must lie. Not in ourselves, not even in our perfect prayers, but in the one who died for us, the one who is praying for us, and the one who works all things for good. You know, this reality sets in on Samuel and Israel here. Look at, look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. He wants to remember this moment. Setting up stones like this was common in Israel for various reasons. 
But most were these spiritual markers of God's faithfulness in the past. Could have been inscribed with the details of Israel's victory, but we know Ebenezer means stone of help. Till now, he says, God has helped us. And I don't think he's saying that to say, but he may not tomorrow. He's saying that to say, from creation till now, God has helped us. And we ought to trust him for tomorrow. That's his emphasis. Interesting that Ebenezer is the location in chapter 4 of Israel's defeat. So it binds these two stories together, doesn't it? It was Ebenezer that Israel was defeated in first, and now they named the rock Ebenezer to remind them of God's faithfulness. Never to forget that he was unequivocally, he should be unequivocally trusted. We didn't win the victory today. This rock should remind us God thundered from heaven, defeated our enemies. He's mighty to save. Remember this. Trust him. If you're a believer here today, what a helpful exercise would it be to jot down some Ebenezer's in your own life. To remember ways and times when God kindly showed himself to you in real time. These markers encourage us, I think, so much when we look back on just a string of God's faithful care for us. So maybe you should take some time and share some of those with your family, with your care group, or with someone that you're just hanging out with for lunch or coffee. And then let me particularly encourage you to use the Bible in this way. This is an Ebenezer book. This is a book that reminds us of God's continued faithfulness. It chronicles it throughout history. That we might look into it and not lose heart. We look around and see nothing but the enemy attacking. This is an important theme, particularly in the Old Testament, that we would learn and read and know who God is and not forget. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see over ten times this admonition. Don't forget. Don't forget. Remember. Deuteronomy 8, 11, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Remember God's faithfulness. In the rest of chapter 7, verses 13 to 17, you see Israel's enemies subdued, overthrown, cities are now restored to them, and peace reigns in Israel and with Israel and outsiders. And Samuel is judging the people in righteousness. All seems to be going well. And that brings us to chapter 8 in our third scene, which we'll call Security in the World. Security in the World. We begin chapter 8 with some markers that help us understand that there has been a lot of time that's passed, and the peace and prosperity of chapter 7 was in question. So look at verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Apparently in Samuel's old age, he tried to take a page out of Eli's book and appoint sons as his judges to help 
oversee and cover the needs in Israel. Uh, it's a little unusual because you typically see priests going in a hereditary line, not judges. But nevertheless, we see it happen here. And we learn that Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways. I think it's important for us. Did not walk in his ways. They, like Eli's sons, were wicked. Samuel's sons were wicked. Going after gain and taking bribes. Which, if you're a judge, is the worst thing you can do. You're corrupted at the core. But I think before we go further, it's just worth asking, what do we do with this? I mean, sometimes we look at the Bible and we just think, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. Good things happen here, bad things happen here. But you know, life isn't that way. These are Samuel's sons. I think we need to be reminded here again of our need for God's grace to be poured out in every single person's life in order for that person to love God. Samuel apparently lived a godly life before his family. He doesn't seem to be critiqued here by the author, even the way that Eli was. He was a good priest, a godly man who led Israel out of a time of idolatry and evil. And yet his sons are no good. Because I think a takeaway just as parents is to pray for God to work in the hearts of our children. Put our trust in God to work in the hearts of our children, not in our parenting. Pray with desperation. Pray with faith for the children in this church. But also model the gospel before our children. Notice Samuel had ways, and he was walking in those ways. And those ways were good. And so we ought to preach the gospel. We ought to model the gospel. And we ought to pray that those in our homes and those outside of our homes in our church would believe the gospel. But we ultimately know that God must break in and say, no matter whose family we're talking about, no matter how good or bad the situation. So if you're a parent here today whose child has walked away from the faith, keep praying for them. For it's God who can save. And stop blaming yourself. We all have made mistakes. We've all sinned. Those of us who have been parents. But in the end, we need the Lord to save. And pray that he would. No one's too far gone from him. Maybe Israel is, is finding security in the in the way that Samuel had like, been there for so long, and, and now that's going away because he's getting older. Old age has a way of doing that, of, of disrupting our security and our health, and, or even in our leaders, or in the sons of our leaders. And the people make their anxiety known, but they have a plan to fix it. So verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Lots of compassion there. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Part of the problem with our sin is that it's often logical. Uh, we can make a good case for evil sometimes, or even just justifying our own evil actions. On the surface, this makes sense. For Israel to think like this. Samuel, their leader, is old. His sons are not up for the job. Samuel's not exactly a military man, although God's used him in miraculous ways. Why not a king? Someone to go and command the army and lead out into battle like all the other nations have. 
That's what we see every time we battle another nation. And then to add to the logic of their request, it seems if you read the Pentateuch, God intends to bring about a monarchy at some point in Israel. He told Abraham in Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And in Deuteronomy 17, all you have are qualifications for what a king should do in Israel and how he should live. I just encourage you to familiarize yourself with Deuteronomy 17. As you look at God's intention there for a godly king. And before I was familiar with that, but before this week, I had missed verse 14 in Deuteronomy 17 that says, that just predicts this whole thing's going to happen. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. So God had promised it, and even predicted it, and how or why it would happen. Because the logic of sin always acts like a cover-up for what's behind it, which is our motives, our hearts. What did this request for a king amount to? Well, we could say in one word, it was rejection. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when he said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people, and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king, who shall reign over them. The people wanted to find their security in the world, not in their God, who had shown them over and over that he was their true king. They are dissatisfied with who God has them be. With God's desire for them to be a distinct people. Exactly not like the nations around them. But a people that reflected the beauty of their God. The Lord tells Samuel that he is getting a taste here of the rejection that God has already experienced through the Exodus story. As he goes through it again. So ultimately Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting God. It's a helpful reminder for us, especially if, if we've had some discouragement in sharing the gospel. And we know God has called us and equipped us to tell people about Jesus, and someone's rejected it, or we've been made fun of because we're a Christian, or we're, we're don't, not doing some of the things that others are doing. But we should be reminded that we're not being rejected. God is being rejected. So Samuel warns the people in verses 10 to 18 what a king like the nations will actually do. Uh, we're not going to read that right now, but I would encourage you to read it and take a close look at it, particularly compared with Deuteronomy 17. What a kindness of God here. As the people are walking away from him, rejecting him, he warns them about what they're doing. He puts his arm around them, so to speak, as they walk away and saying, this is what you're getting into. And the theme of this paragraph is the word take. The king will take everything from you. He'll take your sons and your daughters, your servants, their goods, your fields and vineyards, orchards, donkeys, and in the end, verse 17, you will be his slaves. You'll be back in Egypt, where you started from. 
And this is what we see as the monarch, as the monarchy in Israel just kind of unfolds. Even from the most godly of the kings, even from David, we see him taking. Taking someone's daughter. Taking someone's wife. Taking someone's life. This is what they're asking for. This is what a king will do. So they hear it, verse 19, but the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. So it's no longer a request, it's a demand. That we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. I think there's an actual psychological diagnosis called Giggs. Grass is greener syndrome. Um, It may not be. It's on the internet, so it must be true. Simply, when you just want to be like someone else, to have what someone else has. To look like they look. And the point is that you don't like who you are. There's something missing in you that you don't have that you need. You want to fit in. You want to find your security there and not in God. But just notice how God's plan is quite the opposite. He has sought to rescue a people out of the world so that they would be seen as distinct from the world. That people in the world can see him, see God as the reason this great change has come about in these people that he saved. The people that are sitting in these chairs this morning. God's calling us to be a distinct people. We're supposed to be different. The New Testament uses words like strangers. I think the word there is strange. Exiles. Sojourners. This is not our home. So our greatest goal isn't to seem like we're actually fitting in and belonging from the way that we live, even in the way we handle disappointment in our lives. We're called to be different. Paul says to the Philippians, Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You could just stop there and just kind of live a moralistic life and, and you wouldn't complain. But Why? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you will shine as lights in the world. God has called us to be distinct that we might display His glory. If you're a member of our church, this is what we're called to be. Not to substitute the world's strategies in place of God's in our lives. Church is not a business. Even though many have traded it, gotten instructions for his people, for advice from business executives, the church is God's institution, God's people. And we're called to, to love our enemies, not to destroy them on social media. We're called to be a gospel people, not a people divided by race or political preference. We're, we're to be those that are pursuing purity and godliness. And, and don't speak like the world speaks, or use our time like the world does, and money like the world does. The grass is not greener on the other side because we know we've been there. We have been there.
all sin will do, all that substitute will do in our life is take and take and take. True life is found within God's boundaries, as God's people, in God's way. For don't substitute God's wisdom for the world's. He's our true rock. He's our only refuge. And your relationships in this church shout that out. This distinct glory that you have one true king, one true allegiance, and you've been radically changed from the inside out. Security in the world is no security. We'll have to hold on just to see how this monarchy thing works out for Israel. Um, We'll see soon enough. But as we enter into this new section, chapter 8 begins a new section, we'll be introduced to Saul next, chapter 9. Our minds are again going to go back to the, to the one that this all points to. It's possible that the earliest Christian creed was just two Greek words. When you translate it, it just says, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And Jesus, too, calls us to complete devotion to him. Not to mingle our worship with other gods that might supplement his power in our lives. For Jesus is God. He said in Matthew 10, 37, Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. But our submission to Jesus' kingship is not a forced servanthood. It's not a worldly kingdom. It's really clear in that conversation between Jesus and Pilate, if you remember. Pilate asked him on that day, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Friends, the king God is preparing here in 1 Samuel would not be like the kings of the nations. Instead of taking all from everyone that he's with for his own good, he would give everything. Even his own life for his people. So when we take up our crosses together as his distinct people to follow him, we're not to be like the nations. We're called to go and reach the nations and display his glory to the nation, to make disciples of the nations. And it's our distinctness, our standing out, our love for one another that points to the true king. So that we can say, even this morning, till now, the Lord has helped us. We need him to continue to help us. That we might continue to trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and thank you for your word. It reminds us of our of our need for you and the amazing grace you've shown us in Christ. We pray that as a people you would be continually shaping us and working us into the image of Christ Jesus. Or reveal in us, we pray, even in these next moments of of quiet, or how we can be turning away and turning to you in all our hearts. Or how we can be trusting you with all those anxieties that we're just holding on to right now. We're putting that weight on our own shoulders. And we pray there be a transfer of that. We put our trust in you, in you alone, because you're worthy. You've shown that already so clearly. 
Thank you for the way you love us. Thank you for the way you're continuing to love us. Thank you for this church. In Jesus' name I pray. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.